I've said it once, and I will say it again. South Australia is a weird place, and today's case is no different. To set the scene, we need to take a look back at the cultural revival that took place in the 60s. The Adelaide Festival of Arts, which began in 1960, injected a breath of fresh air into the previously quite conservative city, which led to a more diverse community and particularly a growth in the LGBTQI community. South Australia was the first state to decriminalise homosexuality in 1975, which resulted in a much more open gay community, including more gay clubs and bars, which arguably are better anyway. Yeah, that's where it's at. Yeah. However, with homosexual activity becoming less taboo, it made it easier for people to prey on gay men and women, which included a lot of violence. This is where rumours of a murderous sex cult known as The Family was born. The name The Family was first coined when an investigator responded to claims that there was a group of men perpetrating these violent crimes against young men, and that trying to infiltrate it was like, quote, trying to break up the happy family. Five murders have been linked to The Family, and it is believed that up to 12 people, including high-profile lawyers, doctors, and businessmen, were involved. Suspects and other associates have been linked by their shared habits of seeking out young men for casual sex, and some of them having drugged and raped these men. It begins in June 1979, when the body of 17-year-old Alan Barnes was found near the South Para Reservoir. On Saturday, June 16, 1979, Alan had spent the night at a friend's house. He was entering a phase of his life which involved experimentation with drugs and alcohol, as we all do and there are witnesses which place Alan at some of Adelaide's gay clubs that night. The next morning, Alan and his friend attempted to hitchhike back to Alan's house, but quickly realised that they wouldn't be able to get a ride as a pair. So the friend went back home, leaving Alan along the busy Grand Junction Road. When Alan had not arrived home by Monday, his parents contacted the police. Why couldn't they get a ride as a pair? Uh, I think it's harder to find two seats in a car than one. Right. You know? Maybe maybe more people would be like, oh, I'll pick up one hitchhiker, but not two. That's true. Cats can have a little salami. Yeah. Yeah. No one wants to sit on the middle seat. No, no one wants that. Especially not with someone you don't know. That's true. Mm. One witness recalled seeing Alan, with his long blonde hair, getting into a white Holden sedan. While this was a helpful lead, police didn't make any breakthroughs in relation to Alan's disappearance, and the following Sunday, investigators' worst fears were confirmed when a couple who were hiking in the Adelaide foothills came across Alan's remains. The body was found below a bridge, leading police to believe that whoever had killed him had attempted to throw him into the water below, but missed. A post-mortem examination revealed that Alan had been tortured and beaten, and had died as a result of severe blood loss from an anal injury which was caused by the insertion of a large blunt object. It is speculated that this object had a wide body and a tapered neck, like a glass bottle. His blood results indicated that he had been drugged with over-the-counter sleep aid Nortec. Two days after Alan's body was found, police received an anonymous phone call. This person told them that a man named Bevan von Einem was responsible for Alan's death. Given the nature of the murder, police were sure it was someone with a personal vendetta against Alan, so they didn't pursue this lead at the time, as Alan and Von Einem had no known connection. Bevan Von Einem first came to police attention on the night of the 10th of May, 1972, under very different circumstances. That night, Von Einem had been at the River Torrens. The riverbank was a popular spot where gay men would meet covertly, as homosexuality was still criminalised at the time. That night, two men had been attacked and thrown into the river by a group of police officers. One of them tragically drowned, but the other was rescued by Von Einem, who had been driving past. He took the man to hospital, where he made a full recovery. I get the nature of the murder, probably someone who would have known him, but is it weird that they didn't pursue this lead? I have a weird feeling that they would have been getting a lot of names. Right. Because... Small town. Small, well... Adelaide. Adelaide, and also, like, potentially maybe word got around that this guy was, like, gay. Right. And then they, a lot of people would have been like, well, I I know 
gay person. I know someone that hates gay people hmm. and then would have been like... Right. Would have given them a lot of tip-offs maybe to try and dob in maybe another hmm. gay person if they didn't like them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Less than two months after police received this anonymous call, tragedy struck again in much the same way. The body of 25-year-old Neil Muir was discovered on the banks of the Port River in Adelaide. Neil was known among the LGBT community and frequented a number of gay venues, including the Duke of York Hotel and the Buckingham Arms, also known as the Buck. Mm -hmm. He was also known to have participated in sex work, which is valid work. Mm -hmm. In this house, we support sex workers. Mm -hmm. But things were a lot different Mm. back then. And... Back then and to this day, sex workers are still very vulnerable to violence. Yeah, because the system slash structure doesn't help them. Doesn't help them. He was known to live a transient lifestyle and was struggling with drug addiction. I looked him up because I read a couple of things that said, like, oh, he was really attractive, like, very conventionally good looking. Mm -hmm. And he looks like, he kind of looked like Jackson from Sons of Anarchy. Oh, yeah. So, like... Blonde. Blonde. Bit of a blonde beard. Yeah, bit of a beard. Like, mm. Very similar, like, face shape. Rugged? Probably something. A little rugged, okay. yeah. Not quite as rugged as... Yeah. But I think, you know, they've lived a life in Sons of Anarchy. Yeah, yeah. On the afternoon of August 28th, 1979, two fishermen found two garbage bags and on closer inspection what appeared to be a human foot. Neil's body had been cut into several pieces and his tattoos had been removed, placed into a separate bag and put into his abdominal cavity as all his internal organs had also been removed. His head was tied to his torso with rope through his mouth and neck. Despite this mutilation, the post-mortem was still able to identify that the cause of death was the same as Alan's, which was massive blood loss as the result of an anal injury from the insertion of a large blunt object. Furthermore, his genitals had been mutilated and one testicle had been removed. Similarly to Alan, Neil also had Nautic in his bloodstream at the time he died. However, there was some speculation as to whether Neil had ingested it voluntarily as he was known to use drugs. That is amongst the most screwed up description of like discovering a corpse that I feel like we've come across in all our episodes. Yeah, I agree. This is right up there with Catherine Knight and the and that yeah. whole thing. This is right up there. And mm. when I'll admit, when I was writing this, I wrote it probably five times to try and put it in a way that was like respectful. Mm. Yeah. Because like there's not much like there's no way I can make this sound nice. All I can do is make it sound like you know, there's so many, yeah. so, so many, so much language around bodies is so like it's like stuffed and mutilated and like just not very respectful language. So it's hard to. Mm. I think you did a good job. Thanks. Very objective. Thanks. Yeah, it was hard to write. But yeah, horrifying. It is, isn't it? That would have been horrific. Yeah. Neil was last seen on the morning of the twenty eighth, the same day he was found after being kicked out of a club. Interestingly, one of the last people he was seen with was Bevan von Einem. Von Einem said that he did see Neil that night and that they'd been chatting as they had formerly been lovers, but that he didn't know anything about his murder. Despite this, police focused their attention on the several drug debts that Neil owed to various people across Adelaide. This failed to turn up any leads, and police changed tack to focus on another suspect, Dr. Peter Milhouse after receiving two separate phone calls which tipped them off to a romantic relationship between Neil and Milhouse. When looking into Milhouse, police discovered that he had gone on a bender in the days after Neil's death. And a bender is like Um, multiple consecutive days of partying. Yeah, drinking, drugs, sex, whatever else you do to have fun. Yeah, which resulted in him attending a rehab centre to receive treatment for his alcoholism. Before being admitted to rehab, Milhouse contacted his attorney to see if there would be any legal ramifications for his admission. These two things raised police suspicions, and when Milhouse refused to answer any police questions, they raided his North Adelaide house. 
They found the same type of trash bags and rope that had been found with Neil's body, and traces of blood on the bathroom floor that had been mixed with cleaning agent and therefore couldn't be tested. This evidence was circumstantial at best, but police decided to pursue charges anyway, hoping that the circumstantial evidence, when paired with statements about his character and the relationship between the two, would be enough to secure a conviction. But in 1980, Milhouse's innocence was maintained at his trial, and most of the leads had dried up. Police were still maintaining that Alan and Neil's deaths were unconnected, which to me is wild. You have two guys killed in such a similar fashion. Yeah. In th- Adelaide. It's not like it's not like Chicago. Yeah. You know? I think the fact that Neil's body had been cut into pieces, mm-hmm. they were like, oh, that's different right. from Alan. Right. Even though the cause of death was the same. Yeah. Yeah, and they were also very different people. Like, Alan was 17 and at school or whatever. Yeah. Neil was, like, 25, 25 working. <sighs> That's true. And how did how did Dr. Peter Milhouse yeah. get away? Not, not saying he was guilty, but mm-hmm. how did he maintain his innocence? There just wasn't enough evidence. The trash bags and the rope, girl. Yeah. Could be anything. Could be his blood on the floor. Yeah, if it was like super, right. like pro- the the defense probably presented some evidence that was like, how common are these trash bags? Mm. How common is this rope? He was just conveniently being a shady character around the same time with the whole bender thing mm. and legal ramifications. Yeah, yep. Not answering questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I rest my case. <laughs> <laughs> Your honor, <laughs> Helen rests. Yeah, I rest now. On August twenty seventh, nineteen eighty one. 14-year-old Peter Stongeff skipped school to head to Rundle Mall and meet with his friend Daniel. I'm not sure about the pronunciation of that surname, I just did my best. Peter never arrived at the mall, and when he failed to return home, his parents became increasingly worried and called the parents of his friends. They uncovered the plot for Peter and Daniel to skip school together and contacted police. There was no sign of Peter, almost as if he had vanished. There was only one witness who recalled seeing Peter at Tea Tree Plaza with an adult male, but they didn't see where they went. The trail went cold. In February 1982, while Peter was still missing, another young man disappeared. 18-year-old Mark Langley had been attending a friend's 18th on February 27th. Mark was athletic, good-looking, and charming, and quickly made friends with others. He had driven his car to the party, and left midway to go for a drive with his friend Ian and Ian's girlfriend Paula. While they were driving, an argument broke out about cigarettes. Mark parked along War Memorial Drive, overlooking the Torrens River, and got out of the car to clear his head. Ian and Paula drove away in the heat of the moment. They returned when they had cooled their heads, but Mark was nowhere to be found. They thought he must have hitched a ride with someone and didn't think much more about it. What possible argument can you have about cigarettes? Yeah... I'm not sure. That would lead to being that heated. Yeah. That someone had to leave the car. Maybe it was not about that. Then maybe his friends just said that. Because oh. it was about something else. And then they were like, when they were getting asked, they were like, oh, it was just about cigarettes. We wanted to go get cigarettes or something. But maybe it was mm. something else. Right. Don't know, though. Fair enough. All we have is that it was about cigarettes. Whatever it was. Cigarettes would have helped. Yeah, it would have helped the situation. Yeah, ease the tension a bit. Yeah. You know? Maybe they wouldn't have driven off. Everyone could have cleared their heads. Had a dart. With a nice... Unfortunately. They didn't do that. Driving off is a bit of a move. Like, yeah. Like, at night? Yeah. Fuck you, Mark. <sighs> yeah, both of them. I mean, like, they were both in the car. But, like, yeah, drive off. Your, your friend, like, leaves the car, storms off. You drive off? In his car? Ooh. Yeah. yeah. That's rude. Don't steal his car. Bit, hey? Yeah. The next day, Mark's parents became concerned when he didn't return home and contacted police. The police reached out to all of Mark's known friends and learned that no one had seen him since he vanished from War Memorial Drive. Nine days later, Mark's body was found in the Adelaide foothills by some hikers. His body had been surgically mutilated, which included a wound from his navel to his pubic region that appeared to have been made with a surgical instrument. The area around the incision had been shaved in a way as it would be in a hospital operation, and part of his small bowel was missing. Despite these mutilations, a post-mortem revealed that he had died from massive blood loss caused by anal injuries, similar to both Alan and Neil. 
Mandrax, often marketed as quaaludes, a sedative hypnotic, was found in Mark's bloodstream. Quaaludes became very popular in the 1970s worldwide, and in Australia it developed a bad reputation as being used by mm, sexually deviant communities. So, like, not lights-off, under-the-covers missionary. So people who have fun. People who have fun. (laughs) Communities to, like, um, enhance sexual encounters. Sure. I don't really know how how to say what I'm trying to say, but you know what I mean. More sensation? Yeah, just more, like, I feel like less, like, inhibitions. Mm. You're more, like, out of your body, so you're not... In your head. Yeah, you're in your head, you're not, like strung up about what you might be doing you can just have fun yeah which mm, drinking does the same thing bad reputation <laughs> yeah i think it was the people that the people that were using it you know what oh. i mean the the hoi polloies were out there being like oh these young <laughs> delinquents out <Yeah>. here <laughs> with the quaaludes having orgies with the quaaludes right 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 yeah i think just picture the wolf of wall street whether on the plane, mm. they're flying Jonah Hill and yeah. Leo on the plane. I do know that. That's scene. the vibe. Mm. But here, it wasn't used by like big, big dick stockbrokers. <sighs> yeah, it was just normal people that. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. The main difference was the surgical nature of some of Mark's injuries. The wound on his abdomen had been sealed with staples and surgical tape. Investigators put forward the theory that the object that was used to sexually assault Mark, which we think was a bottle-like object, maybe a beer bottle, had gotten stuck in his lower intestine, and in order to retrieve it, his killer had to surgically intervene. The whole surgery, surgical implement narrative, we've got the tape and the staples and the scalpel, you see where I'm going? surgical staples? Yeah, and you know who would... Be able to get those? Dr. Millhouse. I'm just saying. Yeah. I'm just saying. It's true. Mm-hmm. Or, or any other doctor. Do we know if these in- interventions were precise? Yeah, I think they were quite precise. Interesting. Mm. A few months later, in June 1982, the body of missing schoolboy Peter Stongeff was found by a farmer who was burning off crops in Middle Beach. Peter's body was left among the crops and was only discovered by the farmer after they had been burnt off. Unfortunately, this meant that not much could be determined about the cause of death, other than that his body had been cut into three pieces, similar to Neil. At this point, the investigation was becoming a lot more complex, but police didn't have much more information. Within a year, the body count had doubled, but they still weren't sure that they were all linked, and any leads they had were dried up. I'm surprised they haven't made the call at this point. That they're they're linked. linked. Because, say, in Claremont, Mm -hmm. took two girls. Yeah. And we have four boys in now. Four? You're right. I wonder if it was because, yeah, it is the 80s at this point. Serial killer stuff, you know? Yeah, and I was thinking, like, maybe the police were just kind of like, and also this kid was 14. We don't know anything about his sexuality. Right. But I was like, I'm like, maybe if the police were like, oh, they were just like, these gay guys that got into bad, got into drugs and trouble and whatever. So, oh, they probably all just met like a their fate or whatever. Mm. But this is, I don't think they would have been doing that. But at this point in the eighties, that's it like is, a sixties mood. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And only Neil was a sex worker because mm-hmm. you know how in cases where like it's more with women actually, a lot of sex workers go missing. It's hard to like. Yeah. Link them. This isn't even it here. That's true. It's only one guy. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's because I mean, they are all quite different at this point. Yeah, like Peter's quite young and Alan was quite young as well, but then Neil's a bit older. Mm. Mark was 18, so... I guess 14 mm-hmm. to 25 mm. is a pretty big span of age. Yes, yes. Yeah, and it seemed like they all lived different kind of lives. Yeah, but, fair enough. But, yeah, look, I can't really come to their defense that well here because why wouldn't you at least be like, we suspect they're linked? Mm. You don't have to be like, they're definitely linked. You could just mm. throw it out there. Maybe they did. Maybe. The case was quiet for a year until June 1983 when 15-year-old Richard Kelvin, who was the son of news presenter Rob Kelvin, when missing just 400 metres from his family home 
after playing soccer with a friend in a nearby park. The location where Richard disappeared was just blocks from where Mark Langley was last seen alive. That's the dude that got out of the car and walked. Mm -hmm. Initially, police speculated that Richard had run away from home after his parents admitted that he had been getting bullied a little bit at school. But his parents maintained that that wasn't in Richard's nature and that he was otherwise happy having recently gotten into a relationship with a girl from school. Because police were treating it as a runaway, they suspected Richard would return home on his own accord and didn't get around to door-knocking the neighbourhood until two days later. When they finally did, the information they gathered indicated that they should have started the search much sooner. Neighbours revealed that they heard screams around the time Richard was walking from the park. One witness in particular, a security guard who lived in the same street, recalled hearing a young voice shouting, as well as a group of voices arguing, and the sound of a car speeding away at the same time the argument abruptly ended. Suspicious. Here we go again with the neighbours. Nosy neighbours. But they're coming through this time. Could have come through two days earlier. Yeah, but no one asked them. Yeah, you're right though. This is like the Claremont... Yeah. The Claremont neighbours that just didn't say anything. What is it about these 80s, 90s, 70s, whatever, neighbours? Everyone's just like, oh, well... I guess we heard screaming. Yeah. That abruptly ended and the car sped off. Is that important, officer? I guess I heard a massive group of people arguing. And then a young boy screaming. Oh, but I didn't think anything of it, you know? Yeah. I was just minding my business, but I did, you know, look out the window. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's annoying. As soon as I hear someone, like, slightly raise their voice in our neighbourhood... Oh, we're like, what is that? I'm like, who is that? Yeah. What are they... Who do they think they are yelling in this here neighbourhood? Definitely. After this abduction, police could no longer overlook the similarities between the five cases. At least three had died in the same way. Three had gone missing on Sunday, and two had gone missing within blocks of one another. In combination with the evidence from the last witness, police started to piece together a theory that there was a group of people acting together to abduct and murder young men. Knowing that Richard may likely meet a similar fate, they ramped up search efforts. Richard's disappearance was handed off to the Major Crimes Unit, led by Bob O'Brien. They're only just now getting Major Crimes involved. Good one. Mm. Nice. Mm. During the Major Crimes investigation, uh, actually before I continue, is that because, just speculating, Mm -hmm. he's the son of a news anchor? I think you may be onto something (laughs) here. (laughs) Yeah. I'm a bit slow. Yes, I think that is the case, which is upsetting. It's upsetting that these four people before weren't important enough to warrant major crimes, but at least they're on the case now. Yeah. During the major crimes investigation, they got a lot of tip-offs, some more useful than others. They were told that he was being held captive in a caravan in the Adelaide foothills, but an aerial search came up empty-handed. They received a call telling them that two men named Doug and Mark were responsible for abducting Richard Calvin in a 1963 E.J. Holden sedan. Very specific. It was the Burger Boys tipping them off. <laughs> yeah, so true. <laughs> the Burger Boys in the Claremont case that just knew every car model year. Yeah, what rims it had. Specification. Yeah. Yeah. They published this information hoping it would lead to follow-up tips, but no one contacted them. Another caller said that they had seen Richard in a snuff film. Girl, I did not know what this was, and I just copied it, pasted it into a new, regular old Google tab, not incognito, and pressed search. And now I think the FBI are coming for me. No, they're not. But couldn't you tell from the name? No, I don't know what that means. Right. So what is it, Riz? Well, this is the... um. This is what came up when I googled it in the little box. Mm. Uh, A movie in a purported genre of movies in which a person is actually murdered or commits suicide. It may or may not be made for financial gain, but is supposedly circulated amongst a jaded few for the purpose of entertainment. And I feel like some of these are sexual. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not just... Death. Yeah. Also... Yeah. Sex. Yeah. Yeah. And there are like... I think they're known as, like, parody snuff. Yeah, like, there are non-real versions of yeah, this. Yeah, it's just, like, acting. Yeah. Yeah, which is, ooh, still gives me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah. Yeah, a bit much, eh? Yeah, it is weird, isn't it? But, yeah. uh, I'm not, look, listen, I'm not here to kink shame, but this is But the real deal death. is death. Illegal. It's death. 
Yeah. It's killing someone. Yeah. That's not, that is not, that's not hot. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. This led investigators to look into underground pawn shops and known sexual deviants, but no one knew anything. Sadly, Richard's body was found five weeks later, on the 24th of June, 1983, by a family searching for moss rocks near a dirt airstrip at Kersbrook. I don't know what a moss rock is. I literally didn't even know half of the last sentence. Yeah, and a dirt airstrip is like where the little planes can land. Wow, I actually didn't know that. Yeah. It's just, it's like an airport, but it's dirt. They haven't sealed it. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah, yeah, You yeah. know those propeller planes? Yep. Those tiny ones? Yeah. Yep. A post-mortem examination revealed that Richard had died not long before he was found. So he was likely held captive for around five weeks. He was wearing the same clothes which he went missing in, but he was also wearing a dog collar. Richard's friend said he was wearing the collar as a joke when they were playing soccer in the park that afternoon. Investigators theorized that if he was wearing the collar when walking home, it may have been what prompted the kidnappers to take Richard. I think they mean like... Yeah. Yeah. Because it would insinuate... Yeah. Implies that kind of... It's like a like a dom thing. Yeah, maybe. Or at least like some sort of like... I'm not a straight 14-year-old kid. Yeah, right. Yeah. The postmortem also revealed that Richard had died in a similar way to the other victims. Extensive blood loss as the result of anal injuries. He had four hypnotic drugs in his system. Mandrax, Valium... Rohypnol, and Amatol. With this information, investigators were able to draw a link between Richard's death and the cases of Ellen Barnes and Mark Langley. As for the other two victims, Neil Muir and Peter Stongiff, their bodies were too badly damaged to make any proper assessments, but it appeared that those two were linked to each other as well. The presence of Mandrax in Richard's bloodstream formed the basis for the next part of the police investigation. Police were aware of a number of stories of young men who were often picked up while hitchhiking, being drugged and sexually assaulted. These men were often drugged with Mandrax. By this time, Mandrax was heavily regulated within Australia, which meant that police were able to search records and identify people who had a prescription, and cross-reference this with their list of current suspects. In doing so, one name remained, Bevan Von Einem. At the time... Von Einem was a 37-year-old accountant who still lived at home with his mother. He had dropped off the police radar since he was last interviewed in relation to Neil Muir's death, but with this new link of the Mandrax prescription, police decided to interview Von Einem again, by surprising him at home and at work, in the hope that they would catch him off guard. Von Einem did have an alibi for the afternoon that Richard went missing. He had been sick with the flu and had been at home. Police also asked if he would consent to a search of his home and vehicles. He informed them that he had just sold one of his cars in June, which correlates to the time Richard went missing, and that he had repainted the boot before selling it. This, along with a lot of Von Einem's other answers, raised police suspicions, and they believed that they were dealing with the killer. Proving it with hard evidence was going to be the difficult part. Police decided to revisit the initial anonymous phone call that they had received, which identified Von Einem as Alan Barnes's murderer. They were able to track down the caller, who went by Mr. B, and asked him for more information about Von Einem. At this point, Mr. B was a young bisexual man who had befriended Von Einem in June of 1979, around the time Alan went missing. Mr. B described how he and Von Einem would drive around Adelaide and pick up young male hitchhikers, give them alcoholic drinks laced with hypnotics, and take them to Von Einem's house where they would be sexually assaulted before being released the following day. Mr. B also gave evidence about Von Einem's other associates, but was adamant that he did not associate with them and that he did not take part in any of the murders. In addition to Mr. B's evidence, investigators also searched Von Einem's home and found bottles of Rohypnol, Mandrax, Valium, and Noctec. Despite having prescriptions for all of these drugs, some of them had been hidden away in a bedroom closet, raising police suspicions. Along with these pills, they found a full-size golden harp, which Von Einem was really good at playing. This seems really random, but put a pin in it. Okay. With this evidence, police arrested and charged Von Einem with Richard's murder on the 3rd of November, 1983. Because so much of the evidence was circumstantial, police kept working to build their case against Von Einem, which included a detailed forensic examination of his home 
and DNA profiling, which was very new at the time still. Yeah, 80s. Yeah. This forensic testing revealed fibres on Richard's clothing that matched fibres from Von Einem's clothing and his home. This placed Richard in Von Einem's bedroom on the day of his disappearance. It was at this point that Von Einem, who was in custody awaiting trial, decided to change his story. Von Einem said that on the night of June 5th, 1983, he had been driving to pick up some fish and chips for dinner, when he almost hit Richard as he jogged in front of his car. He said the pair began talking, and Von Einem thought that Richard had bisexual tendencies, so the two of them talked about Richard's problems at school, and then voluntarily got in the car to go to Von Einem's home. This answered the question of how fibres from Von Einem's carpet had gotten onto Richard's clothes. He said the two of them sat on his bed, and he showed Richard how to play the large golden harp in the bedroom. This answered the evidence about the fibres from Von Einem's cardigan getting on Richard. He concluded his statement saying that Richard stayed at his house for two hours before Von Einem dropped him off in the Adelaide CBD, near the Royal Adelaide Hospital, and gave Richard $20 for a taxi home. This statement had two major flaws. It contradicted his original statement, and the quantity of the fibres that were found was too large to have been deposited in just two hours. Von Einem, now being faced with pretty strong forensic evidence, implicated himself as the last person to see Richard alive. With this new statement, the trial began on October 15, 1984. The prosecution said that Von Einem had picked up Richard near the intersection of Margaret Street and Pepper Tree Road at approximately 6.15pm, just 60 metres from Richard's home. He was then held captive at Von Einem's home, where he was tortured and sexually abused for around five weeks, before being murdered and dumped at the airstrip. Evidence was presented from Richard's girlfriend and parents that he did not have homosexual or bisexual tendencies and would not have gotten into a car willingly with a stranger. Forensic evidence was presented about Richard's injuries, the hypnotic drugs in his system and the significant fibre evidence. Police who worked on the case testified about their interviews with Von Einem as well as the state of his bedroom when they visited the first time, which appeared to have been cleaned extensively. The defense attempted to counter this theory by presenting the alternative that after von Einem dropped Richard off near the hospital, he was abducted by someone else, who had stored his clothing, which would have prevented any other fibres being transferred, before redressing him and dumping his body. Scientists concluded that this was possible, but still unlikely given the process of fibre transfer over time. The prosecution also weakened their case by highlighting the inconsistencies in von Einem's alibi for his whereabouts over the weekend of the 4th and 5th of June. Also, by the way, this just sounds like when you make a bad lie and then you have to make up for it. Yeah, you make a bad lie and then they're like, well, what about this? And, and you're, you're like, like oh. um, well, and then you have to tell another lie, which implicates you more, Yeah, gets you more in the shit. So... Moral of the story, don't lie. Just don't bother. Don't lie. Yeah, definitely has that kind of energy. Yeah. Rip his um, rip his team. Imagine trying to scramble that together. Yeah, yeah, and it's because they... Sounds like they gave up anyway. They would have been, like, putting the case together or whatever, and then the prosecution would have been like, oh, we... They, like, they would have just got the documents about the fibres in the mail. Yeah. And would have just been like, you di- really didn't tell us this? <laughs> Damn. After just seven and a half hours of deliberation, the jury returned a guilty verdict for the murder of Richard Calvin, and von Einem was sentenced to a mandatory term of life imprisonment. Justice White imposed a non-parole period of 24 years, which was increased to 36 years after an appeal in 1985. Which, by the way, is the first time I realized that the prosecution prosecution can appeal. Yeah. I feel like it hasn't come up yet. Helen was like, after an appeal, and it, they made it, they appealed, and it <laughs> I was got like, worse. It got worse? <laughs> How badly did it go? But no, yeah, okay. the, if you're like, that wasn't a harsh enough sentence, yeah, yeah. the prosecution can appeal. They're which back for more. They were, they would have, I feel like they would have been under public pressure here. Really? Because it's the news anchor's son, and we are coming off the back of like, They've linked them all. Right, but he wasn't charged for the other ones. Yeah, they couldn't get him for the other ones. So they're just trying to, like, live vicariously now through his sentence. Kind of. For the other victims. Kind. I mean, not 
you can't say that's what they were doing, but maybe that's what they were doing. So this appeal made the earliest possible release date for Von Einem October 31st, 2007. So far, Von Einem has never made a parole application. I th- Initially, when I read about that, I was like, that's so odd. Why would you not make a parole application? Mm-hmm. And then it hit me. Why would you want to re-enter the outside world if you have just been jailed and you've got this whole ring of really powerful people that are also involved in your crimes right. that yeah. are probably pissed at you yeah. for getting caught. That's true. You would want to just stay in jail and be like, Ugh, you're protected in there at least. Yeah. That being said, you can like kind of restart. You can yeah. re- start somewhere else. No, identity, I know, but, but yeah. Y- no, yeah. But he wouldn't be able to do that without giving all those people up and entering witness protection. Right. Yeah, you're right. I feel like the he's man just, is trapped. He's staying there because he's like, oh, at least I'm safe in here. Yeah. And maybe he's the type of person that really thrives in jail. Probably. Those people do exist. Yeah. Yeah. In 1989, Von Einem was charged with the murders of Alan and Mark. They had evidence from a witness who was with Von Einem the night that Alan had gone missing. He said that while Alan was unconscious in the back of the car, Von Einem stopped and called a businessman from a telephone box and then met this man at the Number One, a gay club at Jolly's Boathouse. The witness says Von Einem asked him if he wanted to go with him and the businessman, quote, to watch him do some surgery on this guy. But the witness said he did not go with the pair because he didn't like the businessman. The prosecution intended to use this witness account, along with the similar fact evidence, to prove that these two murders were so similar that it couldn't have been a coincidence. However, the prosecution decided not to pursue the charges when this similar fact evidence was deemed to be inadmissible during the 1991 trial. As it stands, there are four unsolved murders, all of which bear some links to at least some of the others. As for the speculation that there is, or at least was, some kind of sexually deviant murder ring, known as the family operating in Adelaide in the late 70s and early 80s, that is also unsolved. Some authorities refuse to acknowledge the term the family, stating that, quote, they should not be given any title that infers legitimacy, These people have no such bond, only an association that with time probably no longer exists. On the other hand, criminologist Alan Perry from the University of Adelaide believes that the murders were part of a widespread series of kidnappings and sexual assaults of boys in Adelaide from 1973 to 1983, and that there may be hundreds of victims. So with that in mind, let's run through some potential members. I'm not saying that these people are official suspects, but these are names that have come up over the years across various official and unofficial things. We already know about Dr. Peter Milhouse, who was found not guilty of the murder of Neil Muir in 1980. Dr. Milhouse passed away in a nursing home in 2015 and never admitted any involvement with the family. Any information that he had died with him. Sticking with the doctor theme... Another Adelaide doctor, Stephen Woodards, came to police attention towards the end of 1983, when police started doing more surveillance on Von Einem. Most of this surveillance was unofficial, and therefore could never be used as evidence. Police were following a man known as Mr R, because he had been at Von Einem's home on the night of the first police search. Mr R was spotted on multiple occasions aggressively flirting with young men, or even catcalling them while visiting a number of gay hotspots during his lunch break. Dr. Woodards was Mr. R's roommate. I put roommate in air quotes because I feel like they were more than roommates. Mm. And they were roommates. (laughs) But they were probably banging. This dude's a doctor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, why does he have a roommate? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) That's my only question. I'm I like, think they don't just you own enough to like buy two houses, especially in the eighties. Yeah, that's why. Like, he probably didn't need to take in a border. You know what I mean? Oh, I'm saying. I know what you mean. Okay, good. <laughs> We're on the same page. <laughs> Took me a while, but I'm there. <laughs> you got there. Woodards was known to police after facing a string of sexual assault allegations. 
Police were never able to formally link him to any of the murders, but he did face trial for the sexual assaults in 2011. He was acquitted due to a lack of evidence. Running theme in this story. I know, lack of evidence. Inadmissible. Gather your... Get your ducks in a row. Gather the receipts. Mm. Get the evidence. Well, it took them five people to be like, oh, these are linked. Yeah. So... I know. We're already... We're already playing catch up here. Yeah. As for within the legal profession, they definitely look a lot worse than the doctors here. Yeah. Listen, I know that we're about to name three people here and we've only got two doctors involved, but I'm going to, I'm going to defend my profession. She's, she's got a bone to pick. I'm trying to get a job, (laughs) Helen, and I need to, (laughs) I feel like whenever, like, doctors get implicated in something i just feel like it's arguably so much worse when like doctors do something bad because they like seem to get put on this like morally irreproachable pedestal Mm -hmm. and people are like oh my gosh like oh a doctor did something like some you know yeah but i feel like lawyers are at least self-aware a bit of like corruption and that there is bad people within the profession which I would rather that. I would rather be people we're like, oh, um, yeah, like justice whoever is like has done this thing. And mm, right. but with doctors everyone's like, No, they couldn't have they were they're an upstanding member of the community. But lawyers everyone already hates us. So it's so much easier to just condemn them. So what you're saying is uh-huh. The public were much quicker to jump on the lawyers yeah. than the doctors. Yeah, and that's why we look worse here. Oh. Yeah. So much easier to just be like, oh, lawyer's at it again. You've got to be a good person if you're a doctor, right? Yeah, you have to, right? Because you save lives. That's how you get past the, um, what's, that's how you get past the GAMSAT. Be <laughs> a good person. Yeah, that's the fifth section of the GAMSAT. <laughs> Do a good Are thing. Are you a good <laughs> What you good to... things have you done in the past 24 hours? <laughs> God. What good things have you done in the last 24 hours? Mm. I'll tell you one. Huh? I swept the kitchen floor today for everyone. You also spun my laundry. And I spun your laundry. Yeah. What have you done? You've surely done something. I wouldn't pass the gaps out. Yeah, you... You... Uh, um, in that you went to that meeting. That's work. <laughs> no, you went to the meeting and you were very... You contributed a lot. And you moved the project <laughs> so forward. So I was a great employee. <laughs> In, my, in the last 24 hours. Um, oh, yeah, I'm really trying to think. I'm, okay. I'm really trying to oh, think. Oh, I know what we did. Well, we did it together, but you were part of it. Because you got them out the drawer. We got the metal straws to take to Macca's. I washed them, actually. That, yeah. I know there's a gunky. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah, pulled, you, you pulled it together. <laughs> I'm an outstanding citizen. <laughs> I can see the doctorship over the horizon. <laughs> it's coming to pick you up. Yeah. Right, back on the lawyers. Yes. Bit of a detour for no reason in particular. <laughs> Just bones to pick. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're back. Darren Stevenson was a high-profile lawyer who was murdered by his teenage lover in 1979 and was a well-known acquaintance of Ellen Barnes. Probably important to note, his teenage lover was a young man. Yep. Darren's and Ellen were murdered just weeks apart. So what we're saying is, had his lover found out that Darren's was a part of the family, had killed um, Ellen Barnes, and so his lover took action and killed him? Before it is a stretch, but that's what we're saying. Right. At least that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Also, Peter Liddy and Richard Brown were two South Australian magistrates who were accused of sexual assaults on young men in the 70s and 80s. Liddy was actually eventually sentenced to life imprisonment for his actions, and his cell neighboured Von Einem's. Crazy small world. Maybe it was two long acquaintances meeting again. Mm. Possibly. Maybe they didn't know each other. Maybe they got to know each other. Who knows? The thing is, I wonder if Liddy, as a magistrate, Mm -hmm. despite being a disgraced one, Mm -hmm. still had a little bit of sway Mm. in where he might get put. Oh, imagine that hallway with Von Einem and Liddy. Yeah. He'd only go there if he needed something done. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Almost anyone who came into contact with Von Einem or who had faced sexual assault charges around the same time 
has the potential to be linked to the family. Von Einem's hairdresser, Dennis St. Dennis, <laughs> which I know you're not, not trying, I know you're trying not to laugh, Riz, but come on. Yeah, his name's Dennis St. Dennis. At least his last name's St. Dennis. You should be convicted for that. I one, one time I met someone and their first name was St. John. I don't saint. know. Yeah, I don't know how that. You need like, to be. You can't just be called saint. I know, I know that that isn't allowed. But that was his name. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. What? <laughs> right. Well, Dennis Saint Dennis. Yep. Also, Prue Furman, who let Von Einem use her house from time to time in exchange for drugs. Gino Gambardella, a chiropractor who was friends with lawyer Darren Stevenson and Von Einem. Bookmaker Robert Simmons, TV presenter Rick Marshall, boxing promoter Donald Storin, all had sexual assault allegations from the correct time frame or were linked to Von Einem. Mm-hmm. Long list. Mm. And despite this long list of names, no one has ever talked. No one has snitched. Which is crazy. Yeah. If there is, if, the, if this was like a massive ring of people, the fact that no one has gotten done for something else... And then being like, mm. okay, listen, listen, I, I'll tell you all about the family mm. in exchange for something is crazy. I feel like I feel like that does happen, though. Because remember in the US when they busted that huge pedophile ring and it mm. was, like, under the radar for a really long time. You're right, yeah. Commitment. And a lot of these people have passed away by now. That's true. Yeah. Changes to the Forensic Procedures Act allowed for DNA samples to be taken from suspects of major indictable offences. All suspects voluntarily submitted DNA testing, but nothing came up. As it stands, there is a $1 million reward for any information leading to a conviction. The reward also includes immunity for accomplices who come forward depending on their level of involvement. It's this immunity thing that is... I'm like, why wouldn't you? But Mm, I guess... Level of involvement. And if we're... If we think back to what we said about Von Einem not wanting to leave jail. That's the thing about You don't want to snitch. Yeah, and maybe that's why no one has, because of the the peer pressure of Mm. it, in a way. You know, people are going to come out to get you. Mm. Mm. So I guess, in conclusion, because we've never formally linked anyone, so it could have just been Von Einem by himself. Do you think that was the case? No. I don't think it could have been. Surely not. He did not have the the training or the materials necessary to do that, like, surgical procedure mm-hmm. on yeah. Mark. Yeah, no, I agree. And I guess just from the level of, like, just the number of crimes and surely just statistically there had to be more, more than one person involved. Yeah, and we know that that witness said that when Von Einem abducted Alan that... He called that dude. Yeah. And was like, come with me. Yeah. And the guy obviously was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like, he knew what was good. Plus, all these people knew each other. And they were all kind of shady. They were all kind of shady. Yeah. They were all kind of shady and all along the same level of, like, class. Mm, I think that's the big thing about this, like, case. Yeah. Is, like, that one of... people. A lot of people say that one of the reasons that nothing has ever come up is that there's enough people who can pull strings mm. to prevent anything from coming up. Yeah. Or there's enough people who can, like, divert attention away to someone else or something mm. else. Maybe Seem- Von Einem was even a scapegoat at oh. that point. And seemed they only got got because of the news anchor's son. Mm. Like, another high-profile man's child. Mm. Interesting. Before before that? Yeah, just, just normal guys. Yeah, and like seemingly swept under the rug a bit. Like a little, the police yeah. had not much to go on for a lot of them. Yeah. yeah. I think, just a quick note, the social context of Adelaide at this time, like we're talking post-1975, when homosexuality was like legalised, we think about it now and we think that that is just such a ridiculous... Well, I mean, most people would be like, that's so ridiculous to have criminalised that for so long. Mm. Um, but we have, like, come a very long way in the last, what, like, almost 50 years at this point. Yeah. Um, that at that time, even though it was legal, a lot of people were still like, oh, these, like, members of the mm. gay community are so horrible. And we also had the 
AIDS crisis at the same time, yeah, which like wasn't doing anyone any favors in yeah. terms of like progressing gay rights, and yeah, it 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 seems so odd because you think like von Einem was a gay man, a lot of these people who like got caught up in it were also gay, but so were all of the victims. Mm. It's such a, it's such a weird dynamic. Like, why would there be? Why would these men who know like what it's like to be a gay man, like yeah. in Adelaide, why would they a- attack and and murder these young gay men? It's surely the same. I get it from like um like it's not obviously there should be some shared empathy of it just not being easy. Yeah, um, being gay around that time, but people kill with that kind of like you know that that sexual sexual yeah. drive, and if it applies to straight people which it does, mm. then I guess it will still apply to, like, gay people as well. You're right. And there's, like, a there's a plethora of these kinds of cases. Like, just I feel like off the top of your head, so mm. many serial killers, it was, like, crimes like men against men kind of crimes. Like, like yeah, Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy. These are all American ones, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, crimes against young men. Yeah, you're right. I can see, yeah. yeah but it's just so, it just, it, in my brain, I'm like, oh my God. A fellow ally. Cut your fellows mm. some slack. No. no. Yeah. They didn't do No that. one can escape a um, serial killer. That's, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. We've gone on far too long. But this was really interesting. Yeah. Shout out to um, Joe, our housemate, for suggesting this. We told him that. We had already done one of the cases he suggested, mm. Catherine Knight. Mm. And he was like, oh, did you give me a shout out? And we said, oh, our housemate. We'll say his name now. It's Joe. It's Joe. And he's always suggesting these fucked up cases. Yeah. What's the go there? <laughs> I've never bo- thought about that. He only has fucking, like, wild ones to suggest. Um, Should we kick him out? <sighs> Makes for good podcast content. Do we risk death? Or do we get that good, good content? Mm. I think we get the content. I would die for this show. <laughs> so as true passion. Yeah, yeah. I share a wall with him. Yeah, we're putting our lives at risk. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but no, thanks, Joe. Genuinely interesting case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for listening today. We hope you enjoyed. Mm-hmm. This was it was pretty heavy. Let's be honest. Yeah. Yeah. So it, take it easy. Yeah. There's a lot going on on either side. The crimes were pretty awful. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, take a breather. Or don't. This is your jam. Carry on your day. It's your jam. Yeah. Just like us, we're about to go, well, it's night, so we're about to go to bed, I guess. Exciting. Yeah. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.